So this practice, uh, this weekend, this life, it really can't be done uh, without love. And it's a, it's a love that is uh, infused with wisdom. And Sylvia often talks about a kind of convergence of mindfulness, this capacity to be awake to what's here, and uh, uh, loving kindness, blessings, metta. And as we uh, enter the, the weekend and this period of, of practice, uh, we can all explore the ways in which um, the indivisibility of um, awareness and a kind of open-heartedness And as we said, the, the weekend is we're doing our best to, uh, to blanket the days with, um, with awareness. And uh, the way we're structuring it, it's going to be like a little bit ambiguous when the meditation begins and ends. Like, are we meditating right now? I, I'm the teacher and I don't really know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, um, this is actually like an opportunity to, to, act, to not know when when it's time to begin paying attention or stop paying attention, to begin to notice what we do when we think it's meditation time, like what all the things that we sort of try to put in place to start doing, and maybe all the things that we can actually stop doing and begin to... uh, to uh, trust in awareness. So, um, the human condition, a little bit of a predicament, uh, not to sound depressing or something, which I've been accused of before, but this just comes out of this very simple kind of recognition that um, that that life is intense, and that's not something that anyone tells us. Like uh, you know, no one, no one tell you know when we first like come to school, elementary school or whatever. Like no one says, no one told me like, hey, Matthew. We're going to get to math in a second, but just let's start with this foundational lesson. Life is intense. Yeah. And yet, like from a very early age, there was this sense of like, why are we not talking about this? You know, like, I'm really freaking out. Like, I'm, I'm like living and functioning fine and, you know, at friends and great good grades or whatever, but like, 
Like, why are we not actually acknowledging what it's like moment by moment to be alive? And it's many things. It's, it's amazing and heartbreaking, but it, it is often intense. Life often feels like it, almost too much. And part of the value of retreat is learning to, uh, to open and to begin to make peace with the human condition, with the intensity of, of being alive. Now, we have these like uh, remarkable brains that have been shaped by uh, millions, billions of years of evolution. And they're, they're like, it's just a, a, a astounding work of, uh, of art by nature. Um, and they're, they're designed to, um, to keep us safe, and to keep us alive. And that's a beautiful thing. But um, there are consequences of it. And one of which is that life starts to become like a field of threat and opportunity. In order to manage those threats and opportunities, we start to tell more and more elaborate stories about who We are where we've been, where we're going, what we want. And so we embed ourselves in this narrative of the past and the present and the future. But um, in mindfulness practice, we're learning actually to cut through that and appreciate the, the momentariness of our life. That in some sense our life is, is our past and where we're going and our connections and relationships, our desires and aspirations. That's, that's one way of thinking about our life. But we should not exclusively think about it in that way Uh, to the detriment of this appreciation of the momentariness of our life, that our life in an important sense is what we experience. Like this is it. Life is only known in a moment. But the, there's a kind of gravitational pull, a seduction of narrative. And that's, of course, useful. Like we have to plan to be here, to execute our lives. And that's not a problem. But when we become fully identified and we live exclusively in the narrative of who we are and where we're going, uh, we we miss something vital about being human. And so uh, during these days, you'll notice often that, um, 
that thinking will arise and, uh, and thinking has a kind of gravitational pull to it. And while thinking is not the enemy, we're actually learning what it's like to live moment by moment, just giving the attention to what's here. The uh, Nobel laureate uh, Daniel Kahneman said, um, nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you are thinking about it. Yeah. So the thoughts will, will, uh, they will, uh, we will have a cascade of thoughts during the next couple days. And many of them will feel urgent and inspired, you know. And uh, we're learning actually. Um, to come back to, like, out of the narrative and story of our life into the raw material, what's actually here. These sensations, this emotion, that sound, this breath, that thought. And so we begin to step out of the bubble the kind of virtual world that thought creates and into a kind of more intimate contact with what's actually here. And in that process of becoming more intimate with what's actually here, um, wisdom and compassion grow. We're using our life as a way of softening the heart. There's a, um, this gorgeous film um, by um, uh, director Hirokazu Koreeda, a Japanese film and um, uh, called Afterlife. And the, uh, the story is that um, it takes place in a kind of uh, purgatory where people who have recently died go, you know. And, um, and there are these kind of like counselors or social workers that greet the recently deceased. And the task for that, their time there in this like, intermediate realm is for them to um, select the, the, the moment of their life that they will choose to live for all eternity. And then they're tasked with actually recreating and filming that moment. And when the production is complete and that moment is filmed, it's like they, they vanish into that moment for all time. And in a sense, 
the commitment of mindfulness is for any moment to be that moment. The kind of redemptive hope of mindfulness is that that um, uh, each moment carries within it the the potential for very deep peace, for learning and wisdom, for compassion. And so in our kind of perpetual attempt to optimize our lives, to, to maximize opportunities, to minimize threats, we're uh, seduced into this kind of game of reorganizing the conditions of our life all the time. And here, we're actually letting the imperfection of the moment break our hearts open. This is a kind of radical nonviolence with respect to our inner life. We normally think, uh, associate nonviolence with uh, uh, social change and uh, navigating the the world of 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 power and others. And so, in that that context, uh, Martin Luther King um, said. Um, There's a reason I think Jesus says, love your enemies. It is this. Love has within it a redemptive power, and there is a power that eventually transforms individuals. Just keep being friendly to that person, just keep loving them, and they can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They, they react with guilt. And sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period. But just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, uh, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It's redemptive. And this is why Jesus says love. So that's his prescription for navigating the the world. But it's an equally beautiful way of navigating our inner life. Like what would it actually be like to live with no enemies in experience. That's our practice.
So just relaxing into what's here. And to settle into the momentariness of our lives, we practice relaxing. To let go of the ways we brace against experience. the ways we plan for the contingencies of pleasure and pain. Instead, we surrender to the imperfection and the stillness of this moment.
we soften the face. And the jaw. The face is just another part of the body, so closely identified with who we think we are. Just another part of the body. And it can be relaxed. the shoulders and the belly, perhaps taking some deeper breaths and letting the shoulders fall and the belly soften. Any tension bracing, clinging, held in the belly, just relax.
although it's almost too simple to be believed, this is our life. Mindfulness honors our life. And so maybe it feels natural to notice where the breath is sensed most clearly. Perhaps the mouth or nostrils the chest or the belly perhaps the breath is sensed through the whole body the body breathing in the body breathing out without trying to hold on to the breath, you might simply offer your attention to the breath where it's sensed most clearly.
quite naturally pleasantness, unpleasantness arises in the body or mind. And there's a kind of compulsive force to address it, to take care of it, to make sure it's not a threat. And so we have a memory and with our thoughts we try to rearrange the world. Or we have an ache and we try to plot out a strategy to deal with it. So many of these things are false alarms. Ways that our attention gets hijacked. There's zero need for blame, harshness with ourselves. It's natural. And in a gentle, diligent way, we return to the simplicity of our life manifested as breathing.
even though this is the path of understanding and love, we don't try to squeeze understanding or love out of the moment, out of the breath. We keep offering ourselves to the moment. and letting the beauty and logic of the path unfold through us.
So in a sense, um, where the mind goes after the meditation is more important than where it goes during the meditation. We actually want to start seeing like where the mind defaults to. What feels like home base in the mind. And so sometimes it's like we practice, we practice, we, we're doing something, we're paying attention to the breathing, and then uh, the bell rings. And there's almost like a sense of, uh, all right, I'm gonna go home, you know? Like, that period's over, so I'm gonna go home, wherever that home is in your mind. You, you know that feeling? Like, and that sense of home, the default position of the mind, is very closely associated with a certain discursive thinking, narrative, commentary. It feels like home base. And we really actually want to see, learn about the nature of that home base. Where does the attention go when we don't think we're supposed to be attending to anything? And what is that home base like? What are the voices that dominate? What are the patterns, clingings that dominate that place of home base? And this is why Sylvia has been talking about uh, a kind of lack of distinction between you know, formal and informal practice. So we'll, we'll navigate together this kind of like the ambiguous zones of transition. Is this formal practice? Is this informal practice? What's happening? Are we meditating? We just keep noticing, keep noticing. And then there'll be a time when it feels like, no, I absolutely have to go home in the mind, you know? It's like I, there's almost like a craving to return and we do like, like store inventory, you know? Like, all right, how, how's it going? Where are we going? Things okay? How's the knee? How's the belly? How's the, you know? And that's, that's okay. That's okay. That's our reference point. That's like kind of command central. Yeah. But we can notice it too. We can notice it as another movement of the mind.
So uh, let me just say say a word about uh, about mindfulness because uh, didn't really define it clearly. Um, and part of that lack of, of clarity is that uh, at, you know, usually we think about mindfulness, it's like the starting point. We learn what mindfulness is, then we do it, right? But in a sense, to understand what mindfulness is, is the fruition of practice. Like I really, like, honestly don't totally know what it is, even after all these years. And there's real value of having technique and we will share techniques, but we can't ultimately technique our way to freedom. We have to improvise our way to freedom. So we learn the the basics, some techniques, some important fundamentals that may be deeply empowering and we also understand that uh, that there is like it's endless improvisation. Very like our path is is improvisational, like jazz. And so we're relearning, like what is mindfulness now? What does it mean now? to be awake to this moment? What does it mean now to let go? What does love mean now? And we discover that again and again. So, um, mindfulness is often, Define uh, maybe most helpful to talk about as two, two. There are two two facets of mindfulness, and I'm sure the truth is, the four of us probably might disagree and have may actually have a conversation about this. But um, I've found it quite helpful to think about mindfulness, and this is the way in the scientific literature it's often discussed as having two facets present time awareness and equanimity. So present time awareness meaning that we begin to actually know our life here, moment by moment, with clarity and stability and alertness. So what's actually here? What is a thought actually at the level of experience? Normally we live inside thought, in the bubble created by thought, but we're actually learning what is thought, like what is it, moment by moment. Words, images. Sensations and sounds, emotional type sensations in the body. So we're coming back to this implicity of present time awareness. And one teacher likened it to um, uh, 
you know, looking at the, the moon through a telescope. And if the telescope were shaking, we would miss the grandeur of the moon, right? If the telescope were out of focus, we would also miss the moon. If we were not alert, we would miss the moon. So we stabilize the view, we clarify the view, meaning we see at higher resolution and we remain alert, relaxed and alert. That's one side, present time awareness. And then there's this equanimity side, which means that we're, uh, like that from Martin Luther King, we're, we're, we're not making enemies of our inner life. We're reducing the sense of friction with experience. As one of my teachers, Shinzen Young, said, "Like it's a equanimity is a radical permission to feel." This doesn't mean that we don't have preferences. That wanting and not wanting doesn't arise. Of course, that arises, but the compulsion to act out our preferences, that's what gets quieter. We're not going to like the pain in our knee or the confusion in the mind, fatigue in the body. And we're not asked to like it, but we're asked to like begin making a kind of truce with the imperfection of the moment. Something's always wrong. There's always something to complain about. And we're learning actually to um, give up the hope of rearranging the world so that it fits just right. And when we do that, a deeper kind of peace opens to us. An important footnote on all of this is that um, it's kind of, uh, all of this is kind of impossible. It, um, we left that off the flyer. Uh, But, 
part of what we actually are learning is like, no, there's a part of the, the path is actually that it's so humbling to see the persistence of clinging. How even opening to just a small piece of discomfort can feel impossible. And so we will find ourselves like, quote, failing. And uh, we actually fold that into the learning itself. It's um, precious to do this together. Yeah, the most beautiful thing I know in this world is watching and feeling hearts settle. I think that's enough for from me for now. Among the very beautiful things you just said, um, the A line that I particularly noted and wanted to pick up on, which I've never heard quite said that way before, is we are continually making a truce with the imperfection of the moment, which is another way of restating the first of the Four Noble Truths that we'll talk about in just a little bit. But really, in a certain way, don't you think, Matthew, it's a way of saying the Four Noble Truths? It doesn't get perfect. You know, it gets lovely, and then it's not, and then it gets comfortable, then it's not, then it's something, and it's not. And we're, um, my friend and colleague, Joseph Goldstein, often likes to say that his most helpful mantra, mantra, set of words that he says to himself over the years has been, it's okay. It's okay. Whatever it is. doesn't mean I'm delighted that this is happening or I'm pleased that this, even pleased that this is happening. It means I can manage what's happening without becoming so distracted I make a, a move that will make it more uncomfortable. As we continue to move through this exploration together, I, I want for us to move into being able to actually move the body and um, 
use the restrooms because we've been in here for an hour and probably that begins to be one of the imperfections of the moment. And if we had a show of hands, there'd be a significant number of people who are visualizing the restrooms at this point. Um, so worth a whole discussion about why we move around in response to different bodily needs, but we probably need to do that first. But I want to make a process comment first and just so that I'd share it with you because I'm thinking about it. It was so quiet in that last hour. It was really beautifully quiet. I hope you felt that. I think you probably did. And here we came, almost 100 people last night from different distances. We don't know each other. Some people here for the first time at Spirit Rock. Some people doing this kind of practice for the first time in their lives. And all of a sudden... And last night when I read that beginning part of The Birth of Insight, he had that line about the whole room moved into some kind of plangent silence. What does plangent mean? <laughs> don't, don't look, don't take out your cell phones, you don't have them anymore. I'll look it up for you. I hope what it means is is silence that seems a fertile ground for the arising of something worthwhile. That's what I hope it means. I'm not sure. I actually thought that last night when I was reading it. I thought, I wonder what that means. I hope it means that. So I'll figure it out for you. I'd like us to move a little bit now. It's not a particularly beautiful moment to be walking outside. It's a little cold and damp. I would like for you to think of the next 20 minutes as uh, moving the body in a way that makes it more comfortable. So we will in a moment get up from where we are, all of us, move um, with a much, as much awareness of body moving with purpose that you can out of this room if you want to. And if you need to, use one of the restrooms. If you want to walk up and down the stairs and look out the window, walk around the, the, in, the, in the foyer a little bit. Even come back in here and walk around the perimeter of the room a little bit so you keep yourself walking in a circle. Let's all walk clockwise so that part of the time that we spend walking we'll be in a group taking a walk nowhere together. And at the end of, when the bell rings in about 25 minutes, we'll be all standing in our places back here. Okay?
if standing is all right for you for a while, we'll stand just a little bit more. Anytime you need to sit down, you do that. Standing or walking. Seated or lying down. One should sustain this recollection. That's two lines from near the end of the Metta Sutta. And I, I, uh, we'll work on the Sutta together, all of us, and think about it together. It's my favorite piece of Dharma literature. Because any one of the lines we could think about for a long time. But I particularly like that the phrase, one should sustain this recollection, doesn't say which particular recollection we should sustain. So you can decide which one. The, the teaching that we've been hearing this morning is we sustain the recollection of don't not be in love with anything. Just that turning the heart towards affection or goodwill or compassion. <coughs> Make a truce moment to moment with the imperfection of that moment, however you would have wished it otherwise. One of the things about walking meditation and traditional, you'll notice I'm walking but I'm not getting anywhere, so walk with me and don't get anywhere. So you'd be on your left foot now and then your right and then your left and then your right. I'll do it some with you on the same side. I'll try. Your left and your right and your left and your right. And there's one particular thing that awareness of movement this and that is like the awareness of breath in and breath out and breath in and breath out. And an undulating, repetitious awareness in the body is always conducive to the mind settling down a little bit like breath hypnotists in uh, early talking movies used to hypnotize people with a watch on a watch chain and they watch the watch going back and forth we're not hypnotizing ourselves here. We're actually waking ourselves up from asleep. But it still has a calming effect. And also, one of the kind of cryptos, cryptic statements that sometimes people make in teaching Dharma, they say, first it's this, then it's that, which sounds like kind of a Zen riddle. What do you mean? Of course, first it's this, and then it's that. But it's an indication again of impermanence, now this, and now this, and now this, and now this, and let it get smaller and smaller and smaller until there is stillness in the body. If you can close your eyes and stay balanced, I invite you to do that. Feel your feet on the floor and your calves and your thighs and the muscles in the buttocks and the pelvis. 
Let your body relax into itself. Your shoulders. Let your head roll around one way. And then the other way. Let your head come back carefully. Don't hurt yourself. Bringing your shoulders back. Stretching your head back. Stretch your chin up. And then pick your head up and bring it slowly forward so your chin comes over to your chest. And the shoulders stay back. And then the shoulders come over forward. And the shoulders come up and your head comes up. Make circles with your shoulders going backwards. And then make circles with your shoulders coming forwards. Let your arms come up in front of you. Turn your palms towards each other. And come and hold hands with yourself. Lace your fingers together and turn your palms out forward. And then stretch through your wrists and through your elbows. And with your back staying straight up, stretch your shoulders forward and relax. And push through again and relax. And push through again and relax. Let your arms be alongside of you. Close your eyes for a moment. Feel the energy in your hands, in your palms and in the back of your hands. Sometimes you really do feel tingling on your palms, back of hands, around your forearms, around and inside your upper arms. Take a long breath down to your belly and then blow the breath all the way out through pursed lips. And one more time in and out. Let your left arm, your left hand, come up along your body and stretch right up into the air over you. And then stretch through your wrist as if you're reaching up to get the ceiling. Stretch through your wrist and then stretch through your elbow and then stretch through your shoulder. Stretch, stretch, stretch. 
Relax the stretch. Bring your arm out in front of you. Circle it at the wrist. Circle it the other way. Circle your elbow. Circle it the other way. Being careful not to hit anybody. Circle it your shoulder. And circle it the other way. And then shake your whole arm. Really, 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 really shake it. And then let it come down alongside of you. Stand up, close your eyes. And notice how much bigger that arm is than the other arm. How it feels larger and wider and longer. Energized. And now bring the other arm up. Stretch to the wrist. Reach, reach, reach. Stretch to the elbow. Stretch to the shoulder. Stretch your rib cage up with it. Stretch, stretch, stretch. And then relax the stretch. Bring your arm out ahead of you. Circle the wrist. Circle it the other way. Circle your elbow. Circle it the other way. Circle the whole arm. And circle it the other way. And then shake, 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 shake. And let it come down alongside of you. Feel the tingling in your palms on the outside of your hands. And the energy in your arms. Take a long breath in and out. One more breath in and out. With your eyes open, shake your whole body. Shake your arms and your legs and your torso and your head. Shake, 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 shake. And take a breath in, bring your arms up and down, blow out and up and down and up and down. Feel your whole body. In the Sutta, on the Foundations of Mindfulness, it says the practitioner feels the breath and the breath in the body. Feel your breath and the breath in your body. They are the same thing. It's an elegant way to say it, though. Because where is the breath? Something happens 
air goes into your body, it blows out like a balloon. Take another breath in. The whole body moves to make room for it and out. And again, the whole body moves and out. So you can feel the breathing in your arms as they get moved out by the breath, pushing your rib cage out. As you continue to breathe, you feel the body being pushed out as your feet push into the floor. And then there's a light, light breathing just by itself. Not taking a breath, letting the body take its own breath. Breath is one of those things that you can use deliberate awareness to move in particular ways and in this magic way that we are kept alive when we don't pay attention to it it keeps on breathing breath by breath keeping us in this life so moving in a way that keeps track of what you need to do to get from standing to sitting Sit back down in your place. Feel how your body feels when you sit down and you have just been you've just you've you've just been moving breathing deeply. Now we sit down quietly and the body takes over in its miraculous way of keeping us alive, keeping this body alive, breath after breath. The name of this particular retreat was Awakening in Every Moment. One of my uh, favorite stories about the Buddha is the story of people asking him, as they did, uh, after it became known that he seemed to be a, both a sage and a wonder worker, uh, people were said to have asked him, are you a god? And he is said to have answered, no, I'm not. 
And they asked again, are you a regular person then? And he said, no, I'm not. And they said, what are you then? And he said, I'm awake. So, I think for the first 10 years that there started to be books written by contemporary authors who were practitioners in this domain, most of the books were called Awakening. Awakening to joy, awakening to love, my own awakening, the awakening, awakening. Awakening was the word. A little bit cliche, actually, at some point. But um, but I like to go back on it, and we call this retreat Awakening in Every Moment. Because the end of that story, uh, which I sometimes think to myself, that same story where the people said to the Buddha, are you a king? Are you a God? Sometimes, are you a king? No. Are you a regular person? No. I'm awake. Because the next question, obviously, is now that you're awake, what do you know that I don't know? What's so great about awakening? I mean, um, I don't mean to be glib about it. The other lovely thing that I like to tell people um, sometime, and this might be the time, clearly it is because I'm about to, <laughs> is that one of my teachers, my, no longer living, uh, Rabbi Zalman Shakta Shalomi, used to tell the story of um, one of his daughters uh, when she was three years old coming into her parents' bedroom early in the morning and saying, Abba, Daddy, Abba, uh, you know when you're asleep in the night and then it's morning and then you wake up? And he said, yes. And she said, well, once you wake up, can you wake more up than up? Now, I really think that's a terrific story, can you wake more up than up? Because we are all trying to wake more up than up. We're already, we're already up in the sense that we're not in our beds and we're not in some we're not, a, we're not in a coma, and we're not in our beds sleeping. But what would we know if we were more up than up? And I think, you know, I, uh, I try very hard, although sometimes I'm reading a novel that's so tense, and I'm so worried about how it's going to show up in the end, that I peek at the end to see that the cat... Do you ever do that? You look at the end because I think to myself, this is so tedious to read. If I read this whole book and it doesn't come out good at the end, I'll be really annoyed. So let me look on the last page and see if these main characters that I care about are still alive. And if they are, I'll go back and read the whole book. Otherwise, I'm too tense. Yukio Mishima, reading his books, I always needed to do that because they were too tense in the middle. And you make more, the end of the, the, the conclusion, who did it, why are we doing this at the end, is if we woke more up than up, we'd really see that everybody is having a hard time. That what Matthew said earlier of, it's really hard, life. It's, it's always happening. And you can't get it quite good and it should stay that way. 
You get it. I mean, we have lovely times. We have moments of great rejoicing. But there are moments of great rejoicing. And then something else happens. And then something else happens. When I was young, my grandmother used to listen to soap operas on the radio. This was in the 1940s. So it was before television. And the whole morning on weekday radio would be 15-minute programs. And they were series is like we now have sophisticated series on TV. So they'd have, you, you have to imagine it all in your mind because you didn't see anything. So they had people who wrote dialogue. And at the end, they'd always say, tune in tomorrow for the next chapter of Portia Faces Life was one of them. I remember that. And every 15 minutes, and I was, as a child, fairly sickly, so I spent a lot of time home from school. And so I, I followed that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, I would find that when I had left a program after listening for a while, and the two protagonists, or three, had said to each other, I love you so much, nothing will come between us. Then I go to school for a few days, and I come back, and find that everything has come between us. It didn't, it didn't last. Or that, that definitely if people said, I hate him so much, I hate them so much, I will never, I would never think a minute to be with them. Mm. Then you come back from school, from a little go going to school, and you find out that they've suddenly fallen in love with each other and found out that they really are meant for each other. Or they, both protagonists find out that they really did love each other, let's have a whole life together. I go back to school, come back three, four days, weeks later. You find that unfortunately, one of them went on a trip and the train ran off the rails and they are now in the hospital in a coma so they don't remember that they did that. They have to start <laughs> all over again. And I, I remember thinking, this is not, you know, and my grandmother followed all these various <laughs> plots. But when you grow up, you find that, and I kind of mocked it as a child, uh, but you grow up and you find out it's just like that. You finally fall in love with somebody, they don't love you back, they love you back, but then they're in a coma, this happens, that <laughs> happens, the other thing happens. Uh, or you listen to the news and you think about what might happen. It's not easy to stay relaxed or to keep it good. So there's a kind of... Um, Imperfection, and I, I like so much Matthew's use of that word, that you can't count on life to be comfortable. And those of you who maybe have a little familiarity with Dharma been talking, have been hearing the word um, dukkha. So they say the main thing that the Buddha taught was about dukkha, the uncomfortableness the imperfection, the you-can't-count-on-it aspect of life. Uh, the word, actually, dukkha, is uh, in that early Pali language, uh, is uh, uh, taken from the same root of the word that uh, means the axle of an ox cart. So contemporary commentators have talked about it as, think of life as a ride over a... Um, rocky, certainly unpaved road in an ox cart with wooden wheels with a wooden axle. 
So it's bumpy. It's a bumpy ride. My friend Joe, who just recently retired from being a flight attendant with United for 50 years, said every time I say to 400 people on a plane, fasten your seatbelts, I mean them all to do it because the ride is going to be bumpy. And then I think about in a certain way, she said, I don't mean for some people to put on the seatbelts more than other people. Everybody put on the seatbelts. And I think about that as being such a good analogy for contemporary, a contemporary way to say that for everybody the ride is bumpy. And if I remember that for everybody the ride is bumpy, I'm nicer to people, I'm more kindly disposed. Even if it doesn't look to me that their ride is bumpy, everybody's ride is bumpy. And what it does for me personally as a person, that realization, is I have a sweeter heart. I feel better about people. I'm less um, likely to have um, who was it? Adam Gopnik called it um, bitterosity. He said some people die of bitterosity. But uh, we don't use it so much. It's an old word. People used to say so-and-so is a bitter person. Anybody ever heard their parents say so-and-so was a bitter person? It's an old word. But a mind that's cranky and not so kind. I don't want to die of bitterosity. So every time I remember that we're all having a hard time, including me, I'm kinder to myself and everybody else, and I am less susceptible to bitterosity. There was a Dharma teacher who um, died in the last decade. I'm, it's one of two women. I can't, I can't be sure which one it is, so I won't attribute it exactly. But she presumably, with her last breath dying, said, um, thank you very much, I have no complaints. <laughs> I thought to myself, that's so great. You know, I thought that's kind of a nice line. It, sometimes you're supposed to practice, say certain particular lines when you die. But I have no complaints would be a nice way to die. It'd be a, a super way to live, really is what I think. So going back to what Matthew said about making a truce moment to moment with that moment. It's okay. This is what's happening. It's pleasant or it's unpleasant. So we're going to sit again. In a couple of minutes I give you this instruction now. So by the way, you understood that, I'm sure, that I said that whole last thing because of what I said last night about we want to always have in mind where it is that we're going. We're going to less bitterosity. We're going to kinder heart because it feels more comfortable in ourselves, makes us more easy to live in our lives. And we are alternating techniques to keep us awake like shaking our bodies and stretching them and breathing, and techniques to soothe our bodies, like holding each moment lovingly in our attention and bringing love to every thought or every feeling that comes up.
the love that says, okay, this is what it is. And also alternating between just being here for life to arise as it does and meeting it as a friend and in a more focused way, periods of focused attention, like we go to a gym for an hour a day to do intense weight lifting so that in the rest of our lives we can carry the groceries up the stairs. So the intensity practices, like really paying attention to your breath very closely, are the gym that really builds the foundation for the mind being steady as it meets life moment after moment. So as you sit and you feel yourself sitting however you want to sit, uh, on a chair, on the floor, if you're one of the people that needs to lie down for your back, certainly that way. I think the only real sitting instruction that I like to remember in myself is to keep my back fairly straight up because then my chest is open and breathing comes in and goes out easily. When I practice this kind of concentration, steadiness practice, I'll really make some effort to pull in my awareness from the many things that it could notice and respond to and be particularly interested in the awareness of breathing, the awareness of one after another, the sensations of breath arising and passing away wherever they particularly do in your body, whether it's at your nose or in your rib cage or in your belly or your whole body filling with breath and relaxing. But I really have the intention for the sake of practice, for the sake of building steadiness, to have the breath, the arising and passing away of the breath be the principal object of attention. And I wait for it to announce itself. One of the ways that I have found that works for me very well and allows my approach to the breath to be as spacious as possible is I don't reach for the breath I sit back, literally, figuratively, I sit up and I listen with my ears for a minute or two to the whole room as, as intently as I can. It's always been my experience that if I listen as hard as I can, in a moment I'll stop talking, you hear the quiet room, listen to the quiet as much as you can and in the listening, your breath will present itself to you and your whole body will present itself to you with more clear sensations. I'll be quiet.
And as your breath presents itself to you, in any part of your body, in any way that you feel it, through the movements of the body to accommodate breath coming in and going out, or even the sensation of the air itself as it comes in and out the nose, if you feel it that way, wherever and however you feel it, really try to bring some effort to rest in that particular sensation. We'll do this for about 15 minutes. From time to time, the realization will arise that something else has taken over your attention and that connecting directly with the breath isn't happening. In that moment of awareness, say, oh, the breath has gotten lost. Oh no, there it is. You reconnect, I'm breathing in, breathing out is happening. You don't need to make a fuss about it. Oh, there it is, start again. Let's see how that goes.
what I'd actually like to do now is pause, having used those ex that those instructions for 15 minutes, and just check with you about how it's going for you. And maybe some people will have some questions and we'll be able to respond to them. And then we'll pick it up again and carry it on for a little while longer. It is a little bit of a more, as Matthew said, we do this and then we do this. We do a little bit more concentration, then a little bit more alertness and a little bit more concentration, a little bit more alertness. So... How was that? Who would like to say something about their experience? We could have a microphone. Where is our microphone? There it is. So think for a minute. Was it helpful to you, by the way, was it helpful to you to uh, allow the breath to present itself to you by listening to the whole room first? I find that so helpful for me. I always, I always do that. Who tried to do that? And what did you discover? You want to say what you discovered? Or? No, I, I, I did like that. Um, I didn't think it would work. <laughs> but it did. It was very quiet, and then all of a sudden, yeah, there it is. There's yeah. the breath. It was nice. And another thing I really loved that played into what you were just talking about is the sun kept, you know, because my eyes are closed, but still you could see light and dark. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, it's like this, now it's like that, you know. Perfect. It's, it's really like this and now it's like that is yeah. a major insight. What's your name? Ginny. Ginny. And uh, also, I've, I'm assuming from looking at your facial expressions that the other thing that changed is the mind state. Like it wasn't a neutral experience for you that the sun came out. It was like, wow, sun out. Yes. And then back. Not yeah. <laughs> in. So all those things, sometimes we think about I'm just paying attention to one thing. But one thing is multidimensional. It's a thing. It has a, it has a flavor: pleasant, unpleasant, more neutral. Who else noticed something that they want to say about? It's all about noticing. Yeah. Ginny. Okay. Say who you are first, so we'll practice it. Hi, I'm Wendy. Wendy. I notice um, it's like a repeated thought I have about these teachings, and it's, I'm not even sure how to articulate it without sounding judgmental, which I don't want to do. So um, I'll just let go of that. And I notice this resistance I have to this idea that like all life is suffering, because I don't think it's just suffering. And I, I notice every time that, and I don't think either of you are saying that. I experienced neither of you saying that. But there's this, um, like, well, all life is suffering, and it is joy, and it is disappointment, and it is 
feelings of success and achievement. And I just kind of every time that comes up, I feel resistance to that that being part of the dialogue. So, um, yeah, that's a that's a fantastically important question, Wendy, because in all those things, it said that this and this happiness and this joy and this 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 success. The meaning of suffering from the Buddha's point of view is not uh, is really a, a, the attitude of the mind and the response of the mind-body to what's happening that uh, there is, a, according to the Buddha and according to us and according to you apparently and according to everybody, I hope, the awareness that life is full of the what he called the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 woes. And the joys are joys and the woes are woes. And the particular meaning, of, well, actually, the truth is that there's two, at least two particular meanings of the word suffering. And the one that we are mostly thinking about is the one of the attitude that we bring to what it is, the extra complications uh, that we bring to any situation rather than uh, what Matthew said about making a truce with the imperfection of the moment, or my friend Joseph saying, it's okay, I can handle this. From the biggest thing to the smallest thing, you know, soon we'll um, go have lunch. So probably some of you are starting to think about the lunch. If we had a show of how many people so far thought about lunch? So... <laughs> And you probably thought, I hope it's good. Yeah, and say, suppose um, that you're gluten-free. I think I certainly hope they've made an accommodation for the gluten-free people here. It's a little bit of a worry before the lunch. That's a little bit of an unpleasant, a suffering worry. Or uh, when you get to the lunch and you see that the salad has broccoli in it and the main dish has broccoli in it. It won't happen, but, you know. <laughs> now watch, it will, you know. But, and and uh, rather than coming, making a truce with the imperfection of the moment or saying, you know, it isn't what I wanted, but it's what we got or this is how things are or any of those statements, we say, that's not fair. Don't they know that not everybody likes broccoli? So much broccoli here. That the 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 sound the 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 voice of the of the the spirit in which the broccoli gets grocked. Ah, it's broccoli. I don't like broccoli. Is different from saying, okay. I hope they don't have it also for dinner. You know, but so it the the suffering that we're mostly talking about is the suffering about not being quite pleased enough with what's going on or being super unpleased with what's going on. Of, of, so it's not really that life is miserable. <coughs> you know, for life, for many, for most of us, the truth is, compared to most of the world, it's not miserable how we're living. We all slept in a warm place, we're dry, we're healthy. We have all our vaccinations, you had your flu shot, we'll have good clean food. That's so not true for the vast, amounts of, of this world. So that kind of uh, uh, dukkha, that kind of pain, really, f of s situations that could be different than how they are, but they're not. 
It's a pain that's not changeable except by worldwide systemic changing, which we are all hoping to do. It might be, and the, and the, and the Buddha is also talking about suffering when he talks about the fact that uh, everything that's living has a, a, a lifespan. And so everything that we hold dear to us, we will lose unless they lose us first. And we live in that kind of insecurity, not knowing. So that there's a at least semi-conscious awareness of the impermanence of things and of the, the fact that we can't be sure that when we say to people, I'll see you next week or I'll see you next year at this retreat, it's just a hope, not a... And that awareness, which... Uh, in myself, I've always identified, as, self-identified, as a melancholic, borderline melancholic. I'm very easily moved by the poignancy of insecurity. But I'm also an easily cheered melancholic, so that <laughs> picks it up a little bit. But it's very important. Those are the three kinds of understandings. You got another one, Matthew, the three kinds of understandings of dukkha. There's actually the dukkha, dukkha of we're going to lose people. And there's the pain that we can't fix of living circumstances for people throughout the world. And But mostly I think what we are really working with here is the dukkha of our own mind, second arrow dukkha. Matthew will tell you what a second arrow is because I just said that. <laughs> Um, Sorry about that. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, as a uh, yeah, fellow sympathy for melancholic uh, person, uh, um, I yeah, um, I think the the translation of all all life of su- is suffering is is problematic and. Um, um, and of course, it's a it's a deep a deep mix, um, and and sometimes that that kind of yeah melancholic thinking in some ways is actually a defense against another kind of intensity, which is the intensity of hope and uh, love and beauty and and it's a kind of uh, way of actually bracing against goodness which which we do too we, it's not just that we brace against difficulty but we brace against goodness too and it takes a certain amount of courage to to hope and to be willing to experience the the kind of all the goodness of of uh, our lives but there is there is one way in which maybe we can redeem that sense of like the pervasiveness of dukkha, which is not to say that all of life is suffering, but that the sense that an experience that there is something out there to complete the heart, that that is illusion, and that 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 there that we cannot actually squeeze um, 
perfection out of any experience. And that the, the very gesture of reaching towards, even towards spiritual attainments or something, the gesture of reaching towards is, um, is dukkha. And so uh, there's a certain kind of, um, yeah, quiet that enters the heart and mind as we, we begin to, to um, uh, be realistic about what can, what can can't complete the heart. Yeah, yeah. You know, we first of all we had planned Matthew and 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 I just to have a conversation. So now we're doing it. This is nice, isn't it? I hope you like it. I love to teach this way. Yeah couple depressives just rapping about suffering. Yeah. That's it. But cheerful ones. Oh, yeah. That know a lot of good citations. Right, right, right. I was, uh, I spent some practice period in in the Insight Meditation Center in Barry a lot of years ago. It doesn't matter when, but what I remember about it is at the end of the evening they had chants, uh, chanting period. And one of the chants that they sang at night, I just loved it. It's such a lovely sound. I just, the whole room chanting it, and I just loved it. And I look forward to it. You reminded me when you said about hope. The afternoon would start, and I think, oh, it's almost evening. Oh, we're almost going to do that wonderful chant. Looking forward to the wonderful chant, looking forward, looking forward, hoping. And then when it was coming on to the time of doing the chant, I was already melancholy before the chant because I realized I was beginning to feel badly that it would soon be over and it didn't even start yet. And I'm thinking it'll start and it'll soon be over. That's really super melancholy. I'm not even (laughs) poignant about missing it, but poignant about I will miss it after I have it. But the thing is, I think that Matthew's point about it's, it's just not a perfection to life. It's just, sometimes there are ter- really more difficult words to deal with, like it's broken life. Uh, it's just you can't, perfection doesn't sustain. This is a, this is a body. One of my friends used to say, no matter how full you are after Thanksgiving, Four hours later, you're hungry again, you know, that, uh, but, well, the Buddha said there's no end to desire. What about when you were sitting? Let's have somebody say something about, there you go, that, that when you're sitting with the instruction, try to, the reason that we're trying to be just with the experience of the breath, whether it's a teeny experience here or the whole experience of the whole body accommodating the changing shifts, is that the whole uh, uh, attention, the whole system of attention, which involves both steadiness and focus, that it gets uh, cultivated and amplified. So towards which end we try to stay with a particular focus for a particular while. And other things 
push it out of the way. What's your experience? My name is Julie, and I find I always have a tussle with allowing the breath and pulling the breath. I didn't eat quite. Did you hear Matthew well enough? You do it. Try to hold the... Okay, up here. Can you hear me now? So I always have some kind of a tussle with allowing the breath and pulling the breath. And you're Julie. It's yours. Um, so, so by by pulling pulling the breath, you you mean like the the attention sort of is locking onto the breath, or there's some try, try, trying to modulate and control the breathing to yes. keep the attention glued yes. to it. Yeah, the modulating and the controlling. Yeah, yeah. And have you done um, other practices, pranayama, or practices that that where they are more controlled, directed breathing? Yeah. Okay. Um, and what what do you notice when when you, you catch yourself pulling pulling the breath or controlling it in that way? The first thing that happens is the dialogue starts. Yeah. Um, and then. Uh, I guess like there's a tendency to just try to relax into it. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess what I want to understand is just that initial impulse to control as opposed yeah. to allow. Yeah, yeah. And and is is that I mean it is for ba- all humans, but the theme of controlling is that is that prominent in your mind or or not? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That was a trick question. It was. Just, uh, um, so okay, so um, it it feels very strange not to tr- be trying to control something, you know, and um, and there is a kind of softening that happens and. Um, a kind of yeah, a sort of surrender that is part of mindfulness practice. Uh, it's a technique, and it's a deep, very deep surrender. And the breathing is is not you know the breathing will go on its own, and it doesn't actually need our help. Um, and um, what you're really noticing in that kind of contraction is that the the quality of attention being paid is like there's a, a kind of vigilance in the attention itself. And so Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, he said like that, um, that it was something like um, the mindfulness can sometimes be like, like a, a a uh, prison watchtower guard or something like that. And there's this kind of like rigidity and hypervigilance in the way we're looking, the way we're attending. And so there's not merely like the object of awareness, the breathing, there's also the kinds of qualities and characteristics that are tangled up with the awareness. And you're starting to notice that, which is great. You're starting to notice like, oh, there is this kind of contraction or this holding on or this directing. And um, we're trying to actually, just as you said, relax in such a way 
surrender in such a way that we're like distilling out those forces of clinging from the simplicity of awareness. And you'll notice that, you know, in like the urge to control and to direct the flow of experience, you'll see that in a million ways, a million faces in the ways we try to sort of like shape our experience. So, um, I think it was Shanti Deva said, um, you know, that sort of like we're, we're not here to change experience, we're here to be changed by it, to be affected by it, to be affected by life. And that means a certain kind of uh, softening and letting go of the reins of, of uh, control. And um, that can be disorienting. That can be like, we're so used to being in headquarters, you know, like the, the watchtower, right? Uh, but what would it be like just to, uh, just to relax and open to sound and then let the breath find you. Yeah. And it may be that in that effort to, to let go, you know, um, other flavors of feeling come up, you know, like what is it like to surrender, you know, just to surrender to the simplicity of the moment? What else comes up? And then we work with that in as skillfully as we can. And, uh, and so, in a sense, to pay attention to the breath is to let go. Like the awareness and letting go are maybe two sides of the same coin. Yeah, we're letting go into the breath. You want to say that sentence from Shanti Deva again? I love that. You have the best sentences. Oh. I'm going to write that down at lunchtime. Remind me that one and the one you said earlier. Uh, I may be misquoting it. That's a footnote. It uh, um, doesn't matter. Okay, okay. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's something like uh, where not not being here to to change life, but to be changed by it, not to affect the world, but be affected by it, and that that is like a radically different orientation to life than the normal human impulse. You know, where we feel like um, we're in charge of ensuring goodness and safety and security and all of it, but instead to to be in an environment where it feels safe enough to relax, to have some trust that um, that we can be with experience, we can allow it to affect us, and in that process, um, what starts to happen, I, I believe, is that that the mindfulness begins to make our inner life more and more safe. Yeah. 
that the, the clarity of awareness, the open-heartedness, it starts to, to make our inner life more and more safe. I, I think so. I think this is such an important point about the safe because it's, it, it, becomes, it, it becomes, for me anyway, an awareness of uh, a, a growing, cultivated awareness of how I respond and why I respond. M- maybe not even so much why, but that I respond in certain ways at certain, to certain stimuli and over time, how that response does not serve me perhaps as well as another response that a, a response that that is an educated response because I paid attention before, and I'm able to say, you know now I, I actually see that in such and such a situation, this would be a, a response that does not create more pain, but actually liberates me. I'm free from that pain. And it makes me uh, a good, uh, a, um, um, what would it be, a, a valuable or a wholesome influence to be around to the people I'm around because I can somehow model that for myself. I think when you said we are changed by our experience, I think that if we, uh, we really opened our eyes and looked around, there's a, a story that I sometimes tell. I won't do it now because it's too long for this particular moment and I want us to sit a little bit longer. But it has to do with a long discussion that I, uh, I had one time in a very early pre-dawn mo- morning riding to an airport in a van with a, af- after a conference with a van driver named Mohammed. And uh, I always tell that story uh, in a time when I've told the stories about the Buddha having said, I'm awake. Because this involves that a recapitulation of what do we see when we're awake. But the end of the story is, as we're driving through the pre-dawn, gray, um, foggy countryside, as we had here for a lot of the morning, um, we couldn't see very far out the the front window. Muhammad and I were talking about prayer and Muslim prayer and prayer in general. And he said, prayer, in, in response to my saying, do you pray long or short? He said, well, it doesn't matter if you pray long or short. He said, he said some people pray all day long, but it doesn't count their prayer. It doesn't count unless it comes from your heart and it connects from the heart. And I said to him, what causes you to be able to connect from the heart? And he looked at me, was a little surprised, and he said, well, you just look around. And he waved his arm through the, in the direction of the window where actually he couldn't see very far. It was all cloudy outside. He said, you just look at everybody out there. It's as if we've all been thrown in the ocean and nobody knows how to swim. He said, if you look around and you see that, you pray from the heart. And I was very moved by that. And I, then when you said that Shanti Deva line, I thought you keep your eyes open. You really, in a metaphorical sense, eyes. If you keep your eyes and your ears and your heart and everything else open, you see that everybody is wanting so much that things should go well for them and their kin and their children and their friends. 
And we are so frequently disappointed and uncomfortable. That's just what happens. It's not because it's a bad life. It's because it's life, what you said. I said, life is very hard to be a person. My grandfather, who never heard of the Buddha and never went to school and couldn't read in any language, used to take very long sighs, sip, breath, breath in at particularly difficult times, and then he'd breathe out and he'd say, it's very hard to be a person. <laughs> so it's very hard to be a person. That's just... But that idea of life teaching us, but in order to learn, you have to have your eyes open and your ears and your heart and everything else. Does anybody have one more question about any way that you heard the instructions? Anybody, by the way, got sleepy while you sat for those 15 minutes? How many people thought about... <laughs> I'm going to read you something. Wait, wait, wait. This is a new book called... Um, why Buddhism is True. They re he really... I, actually, it's a good book. It's a good book. Where is... Wait, wait. Okay. He said, I tried to follow the instructions. Said, so you try... Here's the instructions. Sit down. Try to focus on your breath. He said, four things happen. Four things can happen. One is you can sit down... Two is you could try to focus on your breath. Three, this step is the easiest. Fail to focus on your breath for very long. And four, notice what kinds of thoughts are making you fail. What actually derails the attention from the thought. And then he goes on here to say about ten different kinds of things that could come up as you sit. You see, you can count, and I'll ask you at the end, how many of them you had. Uh, imagining that you would like to be going out with some attractive person you've recently met. <laughs> Maybe imagining the witty or endearing things you'd say to impress that person. <laughs> Reflecting on an encounter in which a rival subtly dissed you. Indulging in a revenge fantasy in which said rival suffers a public embarrassment. <laughs> imagining what it's going to be like when you get home and you can just sit down and do whatever it is that you want. Reminiscing, reminiscing about the uh, great golf shot you hit on the other, the other day and recalling how impressed your playing partners rightly were, not to mention the casually witty remark you made afterwards. <laughs> Worrying about the PowerPoint presentation you need to give tomorrow. Worrying about your child in preschool. Feeling guilty about not having called your, your, called your aging mother yesterday. Being annoyed that your so-called friend couldn't do the, the favor that you of the, couldn't do the favor, couldn't do you a favor of the sort you routinely you routinely do for them. Looking forward to a, being with another friend. At which you can, with whom you can vent about the first, so to speak, friend. <laughs> Anybody? This, they're funny, aren't they? You don't make up what to think about. You don't say, "Now I'll have a thought about that." You're sitting here minding your business, just you know, 
being with the breath in and out, in and out. And all of a sudden, a thought thinks itself. Is that true? And you say, well, where did that come from? Who knows? Do you ever hear Joseph say, when that happens, you should think it came from the person next to you, <laughs> thinking that thought, and that floated over to you, and well, who knows why you thought it. And again, it's pleasant or it's unpleasant, or you think, how oh, come I think that? I always get hooked on that. That person, once I think about them, I think about them all day. It's really a terrible thing. You could make yourself a whole story about it, or you could say, oh, not paying attention to the breath. There's the breath. There's the breath. There's the breath. It's not pejorative. It's not I did it wrong. It's just I don't have to do this thought. And so I thought a thought. <laughs> you think a lot of thoughts. I remember thinking an ignoble thought and then thinking, ah. but nobody hears it, you think an ignoble <laughs> thought. You know, we're not hooked up to a public address system, which is good. <laughs> so we're going to sit for 10 more minutes, but I want, I want to do two things. So a number, how many people sleepy? How many people had discomfort in a certain body part? How many people were thinking about, I wish I could move, I wish I could change. How many people felt um, uh, um, uh, restless, wanted to stand up and do something else? Feel restlessness in your body. Sometimes you feel tremendous restlessness in your body. Anybody who's been doing this feel tremendous restlessness? If you feel, if I don't stand up now, I'm going to explode, absolutely. I used to think that, you know, because I'm like a dramatic sort. Are you dramatic? I'm pretty dramatic. Um, dabbled with hyperbole sometimes, yeah. I used to think I'm going to be the first meditator to explode on this afternoon. You know, yeah. This can't be just I'm very agitated, you know, I'm going to explode. It's a drama. Nobody exploded so far, you know. And then when the bell rings, and you think if the bell doesn't ring, I'm going to explode, and the bell rings, and you think you'd leap up because you were going to explode the minute before, and everybody sits. And your body, which is full of restlessness, gets quiet. You should try it if you feel... And then the bell rings, and you go, ah. And you don't leap up, because the restlessness is actually not in your body, it's in your mind. And it goes away in a second. How many people had a thought like, why did I come here? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's Martin Luther King weekend, my friends are going to the Sierra, I could have gone, I could have slept in. How many people had a variation of why am I here? Good for you, courage. <laughs> you know, you always have a variation of that. So for years, I have. And I decide, okay, uh, last year I sat for a month here. And right away you think, well, it was the wrong month. Uh, why am I here? I could have read books at home. I could, uh. But because it, it, isn't, it isn't that it's the truth, any of those thoughts. It's just that the mind, when it's not... It's not focused and sharp and steady and alert, it makes up stories. And the thing is just not to believe it too much. 
So we're going to try to sit a little bit more. But before you do, I'd like to suggest that you take a minute to stand up, move yourself around in your place, shake your feet. Just another 10-minute sit. That's a ministerial gesture that I notice in churches and synagogues. This means sit down and this means stand up.
teacher from the Zen tradition, Suzuki Roshi, said, um, described mindfulness as a kind of soft readiness. We don't have to rearrange our life or rearrange our preferences. But uh, relax in such a way that we meet the moment with a soft readiness.
opening to the blamelessness of experience.
couple couple things. There's a, a very strong tendency to um, be evaluating our practice, looking for signs of uh, progress and um, we can kind of go on this. It's like a, a kind of fishing expedition for wisdom and compassion, sort of like looking for signs, you know. And um, we, uh, there's a problem with that general orientation to, to practice. Um, and there's, there's a lot of value in actually uh, just, as I was saying earlier, like letting, taking the, the hands off the reins a bit. Um, but also the way we tend to evaluate our practice is by what's happening at the surface level of our mind. Yeah, and so we see sleepiness or we see restlessness or we see the kind of um, like the end seeming endlessness of discursive thinking and that's the criterion by which we, we judge our practice, judge how things are going. But um, there's actually so much goodness accruing that is not really even visible. And so the surface level of the mind may be doing one thing, but know that like it's a very wholesome thing to come together to be uh, supporting one another in the silence, to be supporting the sense of refuge, to be making the intention towards uh, letting go and the continuity of awareness and open-heartedness and self-forgiveness. And all of this actually, the fruit of that may not be evident, but there's goodness accruing. And so be careful when you reference the surface layer of the mind and you see the kind of uh, you know, the forces of, of craving and aversion and then come to some conclusion about the integrity of your practice. Be wary of that. It's like it didn't feel like much happened for me last night and yet my sleep last night was as if I had been on retreat for a long time in different actual quality of sleep and dreams. And there's something about just like, just being in the container of stillness and silence that works its way into our being. And so let it, and just keep going and know that the first day of, of a retreat is a notoriously swampy day. You know, um, it's easy to forget that even if you've done many retreats when we're in the midst of the swampiness, yeah. 
So um, just a few, a few words about, uh, about eating, and then we'll, we'll uh, do that practice. Um, we we want to um use use the meals as an opportunity to uh to enjoy and to wake up um, some of us likely have very complicated relationships to to food and maybe to pleasure and to craving and the dining hall is, um, there's a lot that goes on in us there, yeah. Like every once in a while on retreats, they'll serve, especially the longer retreats, they'll serve pizza. And it's like, we just lose our shit. You know, it's like, <laughs> It's like the level of frenzy and agitation. It's like, it's as if like an alarm went off, you know, and it's like, and I'm participating too. Like I'm, you know, on the, the kale day, the equanimity is real high, but then the pizza shows up and it's like, um, and so you know for and for for some of us it's like it's it's a it's a complicated relationship and um it's a time when like the narrative of self gets really strong yeah about you know about about uh our our bodies or our desires our relationship to food seeing other people eat it's it can be very evocative and um uh, it's entirely conceivable to me that you might learn more waiting in line or serving yourself lunch than anything we say the entire weekend we don't know where insight will arise. But we do what we can to like be open to receive the wisdom of the moment. So that might mean just looking at the way the mind anticipates and almost like budgets a certain kind of pleasure, you know? Like I don't know if your mind works that way, but it's like, all right, I'll give you a few hours of good practice but then I'm getting lunch, you know, it's like, and in the context of retreat, it's like, this is lunch, food is like, it's, it's the, uh, it's the easiest pleasure there is. It's, you know, it's like the oasis of, of, uh, kind of more simple pleasure. And, um, it's natural for the mind to, to look forward to that in some way. And, um, and part of what we want to do is actually um, learn to, to relax in such a way that we distill out maybe some of the craving. So n- not to enjoy the food less, but actually to enjoy it more. Yeah, to, to meet the experience of, of waiting, of serving, of eating, 
uh, with the same kind of like relaxation of not actually bracing against pleasure. And one of my teachers said, it's when we actually meet pleasure with some equanimity, some relaxation, some sense of okayness, it actually turns into satisfaction, which is deeper than pleasure. Like something actually feels more deeply quenched when we can be with pleasure with a sense of open-heartedness. And for whatever else comes up, uh, uh, please be, um, be tender. You know, like I don't underestimate the kind of in- intensity of the mind around some of this. the teachers are going to cut in line. (laughs) That's not the grand crescendo of the Dharma talk, but (laughs) we have meetings and so we're going to cut in line. Not because we can't practice and not because we think we're better than you. (laughs) Actually, practice makes... The more practice you do, the more ordinary you feel, you know. There's there's one more practice to start to think about before lunch. Um, The nature of this retreat, because it's short and there are more than 80 of you and uh, just Matthew and I holding this particular place, And because it's the nature of this retreat for us to want to be in here with you all the time, so we are not going to have any individual meetings, which we often do on retreat, to meet with people individually. The logistics can't work on such a short retreat. And we're hopeful that we'll do lots of periods of, uh, do you have any questions? And tonight we'll do it. We'll do that this afternoon. We'll do it again tonight. Oh, I forgot to mention the bell. This bell here is multi-purpose. At any point that a question, technical or otherwise, technical or philosophical, comes up in your mind for any of us, rather than write it on the bulletin board, put it on a piece of paper and put it in here. And we'll answer them in the course of the day and in the evening. So anything that's on your mind, big or little or technical or philosophical, put in the bowl. The other thing is... There may be something that for whatever reason uh, you find you really want to talk about right now to somebody individually who's able to answer what's happening for you. Um, One of the things that Victoria and Carol have come to do is to offer their uh, experience to share with you individually. They also can't meet with 80 people, but there's some sign-up sheets outside 
And if it comes to you, so this is a practice, think about it, can I ask this in the hall, or in the bowl, or do I really want a face-to-face -face short meeting with one of these teachers? Sign up, it wasn't there this morning, but it is there now, and you can sign up for that. And you know what? We'll just make our way through this weekend, just this way, up and down and lying down and up and eating and up and down. And before we turn around, it's going to be Sunday. And then it's going to be Monday. I'm very happy being here. Are you having a good time? Good. That's like, usually you kind of guess, but it doesn't hurt to ask. put anything you need us to know in the bowl. And I hope there's no broccoli. <laughs> and please have a very good lunch. I, by the way, do not mind broccoli. I'm just, having made it into such a villain, I don't want to look, look also like a clairvoyant. <laughs> <laughs>